0: let's 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 talk for a moment now this next little discussion is, i'm just saying it a little bit tongue-in-cheek a little bit like exaggerated tones and statements and for artists in this room you're going to be offended and for the scientists in the room you're going to be offended but just like let's roll with it okay let's just we're using this to get into our discussion all right so let's tell me something This this young woman right here is Mae Jemison. She is a physician and a NASA NASA astronaut. She was aboard the Spaceship Endeavor in 1992. And she's made this comment here. Science provides an understanding of a universal experience. Arts provide a universal understanding of personal experience. Now, I'd like to just explore for a moment the differences between science and art. Immediately some of you are thinking, "Well, there is none." They're interrelated at every realm. Work with me, okay? It's an illustration. You know, artists they define they defy boundaries, right? And and definition. And scientists, they explore boundaries and definition to test them and to redefine them. Artists are the creative spirit. I've had friends that, you know, they're supposed to play the piano for something and They're just not feeling it that day. I have another friend that we worked for hours at an advertising agency one time on a jingle. Hours. We left late at night and he goes, that's great. I'm really happy with it. And the next morning he shows and goes, that stinks. We've got to start over again. What changed? Just the artist, you know. Him. Scientists are not like that at all. They are just like Sergeant Joe Friday. Just the facts, ma'am. Art is about creative communication of ideas and emotions, and science is more about establishing truth or finding objective facts through verifiable experimentation. You can tell by all the large words that I got that off the web, all right? Art is ability, skills, and imagination, and creativity, and science is logic and reason and factual analysis. And art is the ability and skills associated with a particular task. It's the ability and skills to paint. Whereas science is logic and reasoning of why behind certain tasks and that can be proven on the basis of experimentation and all. So let me give all the artists and scientists the opportunity right now to either correct what I've just said or to step in and add to it. So anyone want to do that? Anyone want to add to the list of the differences between art and science? Anyone at all? Joe Colombo? science is not about truth it's about facts okay very good very good that sounds like politics um, arts, are very arts are very emotionally driven thank you very much that's, that's well said I like that yes Jerry I the, is a journey of the journey of science is the journey of, discovery. Art is an of that discovery and art is an expression of the discovery okay very good and I love the, that art expresses I think that's very well so that's a good statement anyone else anyone else yeah, fine. There'll be a long line of you after appear after the service. I know. Egal, Egal is in the service with us, everyone. He's back from Israel for a month. Welcome, Egal. Nice to have you. Yeah. So. That, wait a minute. Science and art. We're not talking about that today. We're talking about differences. You're taking me off topic. <laughs> Go ahead, Igal. The common thing they have is imagination. Okay, very good, very good. And then on the back row. Science is the exploration of God's art, and art is man's expression of God's art. Ooh, okay, say, say it again, and let me say it with you. Science is the exploration of God's art, and art is the is man's, man's expression. expression of God's art. Very good. The daughter of a scientist. <coughs> there you go. Very good. Now, I would like to suggest, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is they blend an awful lot, don't, do they not, and you know? all. But I'd like to suggest that theologically speaking, there are two similar camps as well. That they, 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 they interact more, but like they appear to be, they're very different and all. And I don't have great terms for them today. So just, again, work with the illustration and all, okay? And so this is the, and, this, this, and if the other discussion didn't offend some of you, this one will probably offend the rest of you, okay? So here we are. It's the difference between mystics and theologians. Theologians is like in dark, you know, because they say theologians, you know? That's how theologians are, you know? And so mystics are the artists of theology, they, they feel things and sense things and explain things in a manner that other people don't really understand what they're saying when they feel things and express things and say things. You know, their explanations are like talking about color. It's blue. You know, it's not red, it's not green, but it's blue. And the listener sits there and goes, I don't understand that still, you know. And the mystics, they, 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 they delve off into realms that are hard to grasp and, and they're ambiguous at times and stuff. And, and they're very different. Then the um, Oh, and they often say things like, like um, you know, nature is my church. And things like that. I'm closest to God when I'm outside. Well, you'd never hear a theologian say that because they believe you have to be in the church to be getting it right. You know what I mean? Stained glass is part of their equation. That is the other camp, the, the, the theologians. They think that, uh, you know, they are, they are less feely. They approach the Bible as a science Rules, formulas, experimentation, equations, boxes. They use words like this. Supralapsarianism and dispensationalism and Arminianism and antinomianism and modalism and tulip. (laughs) And they're not talking about a flower either. Um, Among hardcore theologians, the Bible and spiritual life and salvation are explicitly defined and explained to the very best of their ability, even to the point that that this term right here, that that, that term right there with the latter part of that, Lapsarianism, that is the study of the order of God's decrees of salvation. Yeah, I know. (laughs) The order of God's decrees. Like... I don't know, I sat in that class and I thought, really? And you published a book about this too, didn't you? He did. And then we bought it and had to study it, all right? And so that's what theologians talk about. Now, like I said, this is a lot of overstated and exaggeration for the fun of it all. But here in the West, here as first world Christians, we fall very much more in line with the theologian scientist camp of God, of Christianity. We are not comfortable with the unknown. That's why the statement last week about that God is more interested in us knowing his will than his will for my life is an uncomfortable statement. We want to know my will, his will. Now we want to know my will, for real, that's true. (laughs) We want to know God's will for my life, step by step, And and, and so don't tell me you're going to send me to a place that I will show you. Tell me where we're going, what we're going to do when we get there, and, you know, what my expense account should look like. You know, we want details. We're not comfortable with the unknown. Um, We're we're not comfortable with with things about our life, our spiritual life, especially, especially that are unexplained. We're skeptical of miracles and the unknowable and the unexplained. And yet, we have a God that is the perfect, perfect blend of science and art. The perfect blend of theologian and mystic. And I think that he enjoys that space. There There are laws that he cannot and will not break. He cannot allow sin into his presence. He will not break that. Ever. It's a law. That's the science side of him. He does the unthinkable, though, without explanation. And yet we know that his laws cannot be... So the, the science side of him is that he cannot break his laws, and yet he has this one part of him here that is very artsy. And that's this statement right here. And without faith. Faith is definitely an art, is it not? Faith is definitely an art. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You cannot please him without art, without that mystical side, without faith. And therein is his art side. In our study of experiencing God, especially in Unit 2, Blackaby turns our attention to what, looks to, uh, to what it looks like to follow God, and he emphasizes in there that there is no equations. Now, I picked an equation that I could understand because there's a lot of them on the web that I don't understand. I picked an equation I could understand, and he says, there is no equation, there is no formula for following him. Instead, it is just, instead, it is just relationship, which some would say is a formula in itself. I'm not sure. <laughs> So to follow him, there's not a, if you do this, then this happens. And if you do that, then that happens. And then if you do this and that together, in the right order, then you have a relationship with God. It's not like that. There's not a formula equation like that. Instead, there's a relationship with him. And relationships are messy and difficult and hard to explain. And, 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 and you don't know when you should lead or when you should follow or when you should say please or thank you or I'm sorry, relationships are just difficult. And for those of us who are Western, first world kind of people, they're especially difficult when we're not sitting across from the person we're in relationship with. I have someone that I love very much And it is this part of God that prohibits this person from really entering into a relationship. If all this is so important, why do we have to do it by faith? Why didn't it just plain and evident? If it was that important, he would just say so. The art part of God disturbs my friend deeply. And yet that is what he calls us to, is he not? Into a relationship. Now, into this thing about following him and what it looks like and where it can lead, this is the part of the book that where, you know, I get my nose a little bit bent out and, and I kind of like, and today I'm, I'm teaching to like show a different light on this part of his stories and stuff. And that's what he talks about in unit two, that um, when you follow him, you know, he gives an example of what following him looks like. And it's George Mueller. George Mueller was an English minister of the 19th century and he wanted his ministry to be one that only, could only be explained as an act of God. Do you get that? He, he wanted to do ministry in such a way that when people looked at it, they couldn't say, well, that's easy. Mueller's rich. He can afford all that. No, that's, that, he didn't want them to say that. He, he, they didn't want him to say, well, that's easy. Mueller's connected. He can pull all the strings to make that happen. He didn't want them to say that. He wanted them to only be able to say, wow, how did he do that? It must be God. That's what he wanted. And the product of that philosophy, or the product of pursuing God in that way, was that he cared for over 10,000 orphans during his lifetime. He would often see God meet needs and at the very moment they were needed. As they sat down at the table with nothing in the cupboard, nothing to eat, God would provide the food for that meal. When they had financial obligations God would provide in the moment, you know, that's the way that he and God worked. And, and my, my thing is this, is that I want you to really, really hear and understand that that is the art part of the way that God deals with us. If we were scientists, God's scientists and theologians, we would think that that's the way God should be dealing with all of us. And so, Dave, you should be able to have some kind of story just like that where God did something like that in your life, and it has to be big. And people have to write books about it later on. And, and And then people talk about you later on in church like we're talking about today. And yet I just really believe, just firmly believe, that we need to recalibrate our expectation of God this morning that when we follow him, and when we know him, that he does not always create Mueller's and Tor- Corey Tin Boom's and Jim Elliott's. Instead, he makes Dave. And he's so pleased with that. All of the stories that Henry kind of uses, they, they are kind of big, hairy, audacious goals kind of events. You know, whether they ministered to 20,000 people at the World's Fair or they started a Bible study and everyone came out or whether he speaks at large conferences... And, you know, matter of fact, you know, you could even say the same thing is true in the Bible. You know, um, God didn't ask Noah to just kind of like build a bridge to take care of a lot of rain. He had to build an ark, right? And he didn't ask Moses to just go down and speak to Pharaoh. He asked him to go and lead a nation out of captivity. And, and he didn't ask, um, you know, um, he just picked the story. And there the, the scripture is replete of them. He didn't ask us to cross a river and then tell us that you're going to cross on dry ground, no less when you cross the river. He, he, you know, that's not our normal experience. And so when we read about that, then too often we get stuck on that is what God, does that mean that I'm not following him when I don't see that happen in my life? I have to admit that when I read Mueller's story and I read about his heart, And he does have a fiery heart. It captures my attention. It grabs my imagination. And when I read about it, I think that that's what I want in my life too. I want to have a ministry and a life and a walk and a family that others will look at it and say, I know him. (laughs) Only God could have done that. what i want i relate to that part of it that's what i want for our church i think that that's what many of us want for our church and for our lives and i think at the very heart of it it's to, you know it's one of my favorite psalms where the psalmist says not to us O lord not to us but unto your name be all honor and glory that that's what we want regardless of what happens in our life, we want people to be able to say that it was God. I want what Mueller had. Not an orphanage, but a bold faith. And a desire to see God get all the glory for that. But I don't think it has to translate into thousands of orphans housed and fed. Instead, these days, I'm increasingly becoming a fan of the undeniable ministry of the mundane. The undeniable ministry of the ordinary. I think that our culture here in the States is especially so celebrity-driven that that is the goal even within the church. Last night, don't ask me how, I, I, I mean, you probably relate to this, but sometimes you just end up you know, clicking on one more blog link or one more web link, and then you end up someplace, and you go, how did I get here? What was I looking for? And I, and I did what, what pastors do. I went and I looked through the entire list of the 100 fastest-growing churches in America. And I got done, and I thought, I don't want any of that. I just want God to be exalted in our church. And that if he grows us, that's his business but I want him to be exalted in our church. But my flesh chased after that link and read every single one of those churches on that list. That's not ordinary, and that's not mundane. And I believe most of us are pretty ordinary people, with a couple exceptions. Mundane means lacking excitement or interest. I believe that God is just as excited about demonstrating his power and his glory in the mundane of our life and the uninteresting aspects of our life and those things that don't make it into public view very often. Would it be wrong if I said that there is enough, that it would be enough to have raised children who grew up and were committed followers of Christ? That that was enough? that if that's all you ever accomplished in this life, would that be enough? I think it'd be an awful lot. I think that if a man and woman remains faithful to each other in the midst of illness, hardship, downturns in economies, unfaithfulness, that that could be enough. I love, love, love the story and I, I didn't prepare this, so I'm trying to work for my memory all of a sudden. And his name just escaped me. I love the story of the president of Columbia Bible Institute. Can you help me out, Jerry? Okay, come to me in a minute. He was a remarkable missionary in Colombia. If you know the name of this guy, someone just shout it out. If someone else knows the story I'm talking about. Remarkable missionary. Um, great reputation, sought after speaker, and sought after leader for his leadership. So, he came and became the president of Columbia Theological, or of Columbia Bible Institute, where Sarah went, and um, his wife was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. So, when he would go to speak early on, he would bring her and an aide, so that she could come along. And then finally, she got too sick for that. And so he couldn't take speaking engagements any longer. And then finally, he went to the board at Columbia and resigned his position. And this is what the Christian world said to him. We can hire someone to take care of Mildred. We need you to stay in this position. Robertson McWilkin, thank you very much. Robertson McWilkin, thanks. You are too important to go home and take care of your wife. We need you as the president of our college. Yeah, that's what the Christian said. And he said... I committed to her on my wedding day to love her in sickness and in health. I didn't make that same commitment to Columbia. And he resigned and took care of her until she died. That is ordinary. That is mundane. Doesn't make it into the public very much. People don't herald that and make a big deal of that very much. That, I think, is worthy, demonstrates that God has worked in the life, demonstrates that a man has a relationship with him, demonstrates that he'll do the unthinkable and even in the Christian setting to follow Christ and to do what he's called to do, to honor his commitments. That's the kind of stuff that he's not always calling us to build arcs or to lead people out of captivity or to fight a battle without ever raising our sword. He's calling us to love sacrificially, completely, and to do it well. And now there are some who will see Mr. McQuirkin's life and say, that obviously is a man who knows God. Because of what? Because he slew thousands? Because he fed thousands? No because he loved one well. I think when I've seen men and women who have remained faithful and humbled and loving to an unfaithful, or to an unbelieving spouse, and they've done it with joy, I think that that is demonstration of a walk with God and of God working in that life. I think that when I see homes that are open and hospitable to anyone and to everyone, day in and day out, that never turning one away, always being eager to put another plate on the table and find another spot for someone to sleep, that home is a home, when it's defined by that kind of generosity, that is evidence of the work of God in that home. Very ordinary, very mundane faithfully supporting missionaries or a ministry for years sometimes with no, with little or no recognition, or faithfully serving on a ministry team that is behind the scenes that no one will ever see. No one, does anyone here today that came at 10 o'clock or 10.15, which is the usual time, if anyone here um, that came at 10 o'clock, do you know who set up your chairs today? Do you know who made your coffee today? Do you know who made your gluten-free brownies over there today? No, we don't. But that is worthy, that is, that is an evidence of someone who does that every week or every time their rotation comes and they're faithful to it and they don't slough it off, of a walk with God, of a commitment to him and to his body. To a faithful Sunday school teacher every week preparing for little heads and hearts that are often more interested in the morning snack than they are the lesson, that's the evidence of a, of a work of God in that life. Why? Because it shows that the teacher believes that the work of the Spirit is for the future more often than right now. I loved, I loved, I loved just about a month ago here in this very pulpit when a young man who's 38 years old, oh uh, no, he's 42 now, and he said it was at this church where my Sunday school teacher, Betty Joe, Ducanus at that time, um, taught me the books of my Bible. I know every one of them today. It was here that I learned that in my Sunday school class. Yeah. If you want to sow seeds for the future, how many teachers do you need right now, Betty? How many helpers do you need right now? I need numbers. Come on, Betty, work with me. (laughs) All right. There's, there's, There's helpers that are needed downstairs right now. There, there are nursery workers that are needed downstairs right now. And so that, let me tell you about that, that could be the ordinary of ordinary jobs, like lift the bottom, wipe the bottom, put them back down. But you want to know something, though? That, I, that woman back there, you know, and, and this woman right over here and her husband, and I can look around this room, and people are sitting, sitting in this church right now, not worried about their children, not trying to wrestle with their children because someone else is serving on their behalf. to make it possible for them to have one hour this week to not be distracted, to pause, to listen, and to seek God. And we need nursery workers right now downstairs. It's not ministry that is anyone can do. It's ministry that you should be called to do because you want to see others know him and love him and follow him. For you to go downstairs and wipe bottoms once a month. Here you go. When we talk about what does it look like to know God and to follow Him wholeheartedly and devotedly, it does not have to mean orphanages or Ecuador or martyrdom. It very often means forgiving and walking away and rebuilding trust in a relationship to an unfaithful spouse to a business partner to a child who's stolen from you to parents who abandon you our world does not know what we what reconciliation in relationships look like that when a relationship gets broken typically they they believe well there's nothing you can do about that walk away it's bad news you're better off without them and yet in God's economy the demonstration of God in our lives is when we take something that the world would say was unfixable and we see God mend it and maybe not immediately but over time That is very pointing attention to God kind of stuff. When we see us go through suffering in a way that, you know, there are a number of you in this room that others people in this room don't know are suffering because you do it and you see you are seeking God's purpose in it. I will, I will never, ever, ever forget on a Sunday morning, I was sitting back there with Leon, sitting back in that corner, and a man that I loved and admired came and shared his testimony right here at a standing-up microphone. He had been just become fully supported to go with New Tribes Mission Agency to go and serve overseas. And if you are no missionaries or were a missionary, you know how hard it is to finally get fully supported. And as he got fully supported, he was told, you have Lou Gehrig's disease. And I will never forget the day he stood up and talked about his suffering by saying, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it produces no fruit. I will never forget that day. Because his suffering was an instrument of God in his life. That was a mark of a life lived intimately with Christ of a life that was, he, he was known by Christ and Christ knew him. John never went overseas and never led anyone to Christ overseas. He sat down there in that little white house on the hospital bed as members of, of different ones of us went down and sat with him during Sunday morning church. And he finally died in a nursing home. That was not a diet that was wasted. That was not a life that was wasted because the way he lived it with the Lord made people say, that that had to only be God. Suffering when done in a relationship with the Lord points others to God. I'm convinced that God is after each and every one of us and wants to work through us, just like the principles say. I'm convinced that He wants to demonstrate Himself mighty on our behalf. That's what Scripture says. But I'm also convinced that He's very willing to do it in small, to the world, in significant ways, but are huge to Him. There is one passage that I really, really love in Luke out of Luke 21. And Jesus said, as he looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. there is so much of what we do out of our devotion to Christ that so many never see. And that day the Lord saw it and he pointed it out to those around him. But a woman like that, that probably wasn't the only time she had given sacrificially, but it might have been the only time someone ever noticed it. And the one who noticed it is the one that we want to notice it in this, in this time, the Lord. For we live sacrificially, we are hospitable, we serve in the nursery, we lead worship, we set up tables, we make gluten-free brownies, not for us, but for him out of devotion to Him, out of an expression of our love to Him so that people will say, that must be the Lord. That must be God. That widow did something that could only be described as God's work in her life, to give all that she had, knowing that God would give her her next meal. That's evidence of a work of God and a life. God isn't just seeking to do big things through us, although he is very willing and eager to, and there are so many books written about so many people who did amazing things. He is more interested in doing huge, unthinkable things in us so that he can do huge, un- unthinkable things through us. And his real goal It's not so much that we build orphanages, but that he is able to recreate the image of Christ in each and every one of us. And in doing so, draw attention back to himself. Blackenby says there's no method or formula to seeing this happen. There's only a relationship. And the creator of the universe is who that relationship is with. A relationship with him that changes you from the inside out and ultimately to, to do crazy, huge things for him, whether it's forgiving someone or making another meal or making another bed. And, and this is huge. This comment I, I marked up in my book, this is huge. You will not be able to rely on someone else's walk with God. Your relationship with him is of utmost importance. Sometimes that's the only thing I, I have, I'm afraid of with our biographies and our stories about Jim Elliott and everybody, is that myself, for me, I'll say this, is that I am relying and living in the shadow of their walk with him more than I am walking with him myself. We will never throw a reflection of Christ onto the world for them to notice God unless we have that walk ourselves. It's not easy, and we don't do it very well, but he makes, he, he, you know, he, he, he makes allowances for that. So let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you that we do not all have to be Noah or Moses or Joshua or Caleb, Paul, Peter, Isaiah. Instead, Father, we can be us and we can live in the ordinariness of our life and allow you to work through us in sometimes small ways and sometimes big ways. But really the expectation that you have of us and the one that we should rightly have of ourselves is to know you and to love you deeply and then to allow you to work however you want to. It is the same thing, Father, when we talked about do we, should we know God's will for our life or should we know God's will? Well, here it is Here is like should we seek to do great things for God or should we seek to know God greatly? And it is to seek to know him greatly and allow you to work in all that. Thank you for grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the doctrine of starting over fresh every single day, every single moment. What a great God you are. May we follow you more and more wholeheartedly. May we love you more deeply. And may more people look at our lives and say, that could only be God because it couldn't be him. It's in your name we pray. Amen.